Episode 15, Artist Dorian Lind. My name is Michael Delgado and I'm your host. I come to you each week from the fantastic library bar in the historic Mayfair Hotel right here in downtown LA. Today I'm meeting artist Dorian Lind. She appears through the hotel entrance, backlit by a pale Angelino afternoon. A halo of light surrounds her unkempt mane of black shoulder-length hair. She's in a white tee and scrappy jeans that have the telltale sign of tiny flecks of paint splatter. She's come straight from the studio. It's time to meet. You know Geiger's bookstore across the street? I think I may have passed. You know Geiger by sight? Geiger's in his early 40s, medium height, fattish, soft all over, Charlie Chan mustache, well-dressed, wears a black hat, affects the knowledge of antiques and hasn't any. And, oh, yes, I think his left eye is glass. Hello. 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 My guest today is Dorian Lynn, a Canadian artist who lives and works in L.A., her work is most often centered around investigations into the systems of power and inequity concealed within the cultural signifiers of femininity and their machinations. She's an incredibly interesting and engaging person. Please welcome Dorian Lind. <laughs> Pushing record is a very good thing. Yeah, so welcome. Thank you. Yeah, you and you've not been in the hotel before. I have not. It's beautiful. I got to walk around a little bit. It's gorgeous. Okay. Yeah, thank you for being on time. I yeah. appreciate that. <laughs> no, it's nice. It's it's uh, it's hard to do in Los Angeles with all the traffic and stuff. Ooh, did you come from downtown? Is that where your studio is? Yes, my studio is in the Garment District. So I was just there, came over here a little bit early. I really love this area, so I came and did some walking around. But yes, I was working all morning, and then that's where I have to head back to after this. All right, well, we'll make it snappy. <laughs> So you um, you worked in the area before, right? We had Phil America on a couple weeks ago, and you did a, a project with him in the SWAT meet, right? Yeah, on that's Southern. right. That's right, right across from the park. Uh, so my involvement was with uh, Phil and Think Tank Gallery did a show together in the SWAT meet, and for it, I had a couple works in the show. And I also helped them restore the mural that was at the top. So yeah. there's and the that's still there, sign. right? We can see that. It is still there, yeah. And I love the signage that's in the area. It's one of my favorite things about it. And so I was so excited at the opportunity to have that there. And so being able to walk by and see it really, really thrills me. Yeah, it's an interesting area. We're talking about West, the Westlake area of Los Angeles because it's in transition. It used to be quite the uh, you know, it was the correct address for Angelinos back in the day, like in the 30s or 20s, actually. And they have beautiful homes, of which there are very few left. Yeah, the buildings still really reflect it, and it's so interesting. It's one of the things I love that this, the park, I think they, I mean, it's, can I swear on this? It's, it's fucked up. And uh, some years ago, they really tried hard to restore it, and they brought in, like, swan boats and paddle boats and stuff. And the community really was like, no, we're not okay with this. And so oh, it's still, right? yeah, it was, it was rejected. 
And, you know, they've only drained it those couple times, and I really don't think that they liked what they saw when they did that, and so it hasn't been done for quite some time. Yeah. And so it's still, you know, in, in complete disrepair. Yeah, it's a gnarly part of town. I, I, I yeah. You know, parts of it. And then there's, you know, the dreaded gentrification is, is happening. I mean, we, yeah. you know, here in the Mayfair, we're sort of part of that. Yeah. Mayfair is uh, not quite in, it's on the cusp Yeah, of the it's West a little bit outskirts. But yeah. that's one of the things I like is that the community has kind of like completely rejected that. And so it's still really, it's one of those communities in L.A., you know, here like Boyle Heights that really has taken like a strong stance against gentrification. Right. And kind of said like, this is our yeah. space, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I love it here. Well, Best Respados, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I adore it. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. I haven't had one of those in forever. Oh yeah, it's coming back. We're we're about to be in you know April. It's about to be Rosado's yeah. time. Uh, <laughs> the Rosado mm-hmm. machine. Those are fun. Um, for, uh, that's basically a shaved ice thing, but it's with you know tropical fruits, and then you put that super spicy thing on top of it too, right? Mm-hmm. Tahine, yeah. yeah. Tahine. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so your work, then let's talk about your work. Until, sure. And actually, f- nearby there, in the, or not too far, is the the guest gallery, right? I would never pronounce the name of that people. The Mar- Marciano. Mar- Marciano. Marciano. Yeah, you. the Marciano Art Foundation. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not in Westlake, but it's not too far. Nope, not too far. Just yeah. kind of on the edge of Koreatown. Right. On Wilshire there. And you, you your show was there last year. Year. Yes, or that's right. This last season right. uh, came down in January, and you know it's a beautiful building. I was so lucky to have that work there, and right. and Paul and Maurice are just incredible. They're really really wonderful, and yeah, it was really just it was and beautiful. So tell me about the show because I missed it. I'm sorry. I mean, I've yeah. seen the work on your site. Yeah. Which is DorianLynn.com, yes? That's right. And I, it's not surprising to have missed it. The museum is really high demand, so it's really difficult mm-hmm. to get a ticket. And at the same time, uh, Ai Weiwei just had a show that came down there, and yeah. uh, Yayoi Kusama did. So it was really like hundreds of thousands of people trying to get tickets to this mm-hmm. museum all at the same time. And so the work went up uh, for the Sexy Beast Gala. And this oh, was right. yes, yeah, yes, it was amazing. Sexy Beast for Planned Parenthood. They're a really incredible nonprofit. So they raise money specifically for Planned Parenthood in Los Angeles. And this gala raised over a million dollars. Yeah, they do really amazing work. Um, and so I was so honored to be able to be a part of that. And so the uh, work buying power, this sculptural installation that's combined with a video work and then a few different animation cells. That went up at the Marciano for the gala, and uh, Maurice is so wonderful, and he asked if he could keep it up on view, and so it was up uh, for their winter season, and yeah, just came down, and so Buying Power is a work that, this is, I think, the third iteration of it I've done. The first was for the uh, California Democrat Convention. Mm, right. Yeah. And, and it did, it, it did it have the water bottles and stuff too? Or I, in the picture, it looked like yeah. it was different kind of merch. Yeah. So what I did for the California Democrat Convention was that I built an actual functional store. So it was an artwork, an immersive artwork. And Planned Parenthood had never really done anything like that. So it was kind of their first foray into an immersive work that was beside their table. 
And so it was this work, this 10 by 10 foot store that you could go in and purchase things and handle all the items. And so they were um, reconceptualized cleaning and beauty products. So they were all, you know, rebranded with things like glass ceiling cleaner and items like that. (laughs) And it was really incredible. And it was a really, I think, beautiful place to do it because this is where, you know, policy is made. These are our conversations that we're starting in the face of policymakers. Right. So it's a really good opportunity to, you know, have a work that something like uh, like a harassment repellent, you know? And so it's like a spray. Yeah. And it's really it's tongue in cheek, but you know, sure. it's talking about a very real issue. So it's something that you're able to I was able to put it in Gavin Newsom's hand directly and say you know, Mr. Newsom, what are you going to do about this issue? This is a massive problem. We have an open letter that was just signed by all of the women in California government that had just come out a few weeks prior. Yeah. And so it was a really amazing opportunity to, you know, have these conversations be really visible in a really real way. But, you know, they're not... The, the items I really wanted to, to be an entry point into a difficult conversation. Yeah. So it's something that I really wanted to lead with accessibility, you know? Yeah, yeah. I, it, it's an interesting thing with uh, socially oriented art that way because some of it can be so didactic and heavy-handed. And, right. And uh, your work in that particular piece, or, and, and the one, at least from what I saw in the, the Marciano um, galleries as well, um, you know, as you said, are kind of tongue-in-cheek, and so they're a little lighter, but they still pack a punch. Right, exactly. And I, and I really am a big believer in meeting people where they're at. And I really, um, I don't think that social change can happen unless you're willing to do work like that, you know, and start conversations with people that might not necessarily want to have that conversation. Like, you know, it's really, it's a work that, that a lot of people really, really enjoy. And there are so many people... I mean, I, at the California Democrat Convention especially, I had a lot of, you know, men come in and just kind of be like, I don't get it, you know, this isn't for me. And so that's a really good opportunity really? for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that's a great opportunity for me to, you know, maybe educate a little bit or, yeah. or spark something new. And I, a lot of that kind of socially oriented work, like you say, yeah, is really heavy. Not that this isn't heavy, but it can exist on multiple levels at once where maybe for someone, you know, they take it all in and... You know, it's an interesting work and they can move on, but somebody else yeah. reads it and they can kind of go into a little bit more depth. So really, I like that, um, those multiple levels that it plays on. That's something that's really important for me for the work. Yeah, and so did, did at the convention, did it have, did it feel like a merch stand or did it feel like it was in a gallery space and they, you were actually looking at art or you were actually... Looking at the sloganeering. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It was kind of an interesting combination of both, I would say, depending on the viewer. Uh, the work itself really encourages interaction. It's something that because these are such recognizable shapes and objects that have been turned into art objects that mm. you know typically are specifically just for viewing and looking, because they're so familiar, you really do want to engage. You want to pick it up and handle it and feel it. And so the convention was really great because it did encourage that. Whereas at the Marciano, that was something that I think was lacking with the piece that so many people wanted, like had the urge to touch it and reach out and become a part of it Mm -hmm. that wasn't really possible 
And I, I thought of a bunch of different ways that I could make that a possibility, but in the end, you know, no, just wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But I'll be doing it again on a, a much, much larger scale uh, in the fall. So there will be one downtown Los Angeles. Oh, like, a, like your own pop-up or what? Yeah, yeah. So I'll do it for a month, and it, like the Democrat convention, you'll be able to come in and purchase things That's and interact. Fun. Yeah, it's going to be great. And so that was a, a big feedback from the work at the Marciano is that, you know, people were really happy, but they also really wanted that extra, you know, layer where yeah. they could, yeah. So did you show the, the cell paintings uh, in that space as well? Yes, I did. So at the work, right above it, are these faux pricing signs mm. that reflect the racialized breakdown of the wage gap, or as you know, close as we can come to those numbers. Of course, they change. They're really difficult to get to. Yeah. They can be interpreted differently. But so those were cell-painted paintings okay. that uh, there was, I believe, four of them that broke it down by, uh, yeah, so that was the wage gap. But that, those cells uh, are typically what my practice is oriented around. I do a fair amount of sculptural installation work, like what was at the Marciano, but typically my practice is focused on animation cells. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so we were going to talk about that because it is your focus. I did want to talk about the other pieces we just did but um, so on the cell thing if you talk a little bit about it and maybe for those who are not animation aficionados um, maybe you could cover like what's involved in a cell I mean I think pretty much people know but yeah yeah you'd be surprised actually I, I kind of thought it was something that more people were aware of so for anyone who doesn't know an animation cell comes from the word celluloid and any animated piece of content that you saw prior to kind of the early 90s with um, computer, you know, animated work was made through animation cells. And so each frame is a cell and it is hand inked on the front and then flipped over and then painted on the reverse side with cell vinyl, which is this really rich, really beautiful paint and was all done by hand and at least for uh, Walt Disney Studios from its inception was all gendered. So the ink and paint department was completely, uh, all women made these works. So everything you saw that was animated specifically by Walt Disney Studios, every single frame you saw was hand painted by a woman. And I found that so fascinating. So yeah. that's, that's kind of the inception of where I came in, of where I started learning about it was number of years ago I was doing this research and I learned this and I just thought how could that possibly be and they were women were specifically barred from working in other areas of the company so they were not hired for the animation process basically anything that creatively contributed to the process they were that was only for a period though I mean I, that was I, only for a period yes and 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 from what I understood I did a little bit of homework but um, what I got was, yeah, it was very gendered, but there was, but it was set up like an apprentice program, right? But it actually became sort of indentured slave. <laughs> yeah. Indentured servant. Well, kind yeah. of the whole studio was. Not yeah. just the ink and paint department, but the yeah. animators. Kind yeah. of everybody was working in this, these really difficult conditions that, yeah, could yeah. be compared to that. And it, what's really difficult to reconcile is that the works created are so incredible and amazing yeah. so it kind yeah. of makes you think 
Well, from the couple of things I read, it was like, yeah, everybody, you know, looking back at it, they're going, yeah, that's, you know, we worked ridiculous hours and everything, but they, you know, it felt family-ish, and they felt, um, you know, maybe not in the one particular period you were talking about, but um, that, uh, you know, they didn't mind the hours so much, even though they were, it was exhausting and all that, because the, because what was being produced was right. amazing. Exactly, the output um, was so incredible. And so what's interesting is that by kind of the 40s, they would hire, you know, a female animator here, yeah. sound department, different things like that, and there's all of this uh, works coming out now about the women who worked for Disney, but it's all sanctioned by Disney, uh -huh. so it isn't really critical in any way. Right. So there's this kind of revisionist history that's happening that is focusing on these women that made these creative contributions, but kind of glossing over the fact, you know, they're heralding it as this like egalitarian wonderland yeah. <laughs> that, you know, Disney was so ahead of his time, kind of yeah. washing over the fact that he was, you know, like a deeply problematic, highly racist individual sure. that, so it's, I mean, it's hard to, it's a difficult conversation to have now for sure. Right. But there were a lot of women that were like, were really incredible. All of the the paints were developed by this woman, Mary Weiser, who yeah. was a painter, uh, became a chemist specifically to develop these paints, formed an all-woman chemistry team. So all of these paints that you see, they weren't only hand-painted by women, but they were also completely developed by oh, women. Really? Wow. Yeah, she holds all the patents still. It's really, really, really? amazing. Yeah, and so this, this process, this cell vinyl specifically, this type of paint, was really fascinating to me, and it's a, a material that a lot of artists started to use, uh, you know, Larry Pittman, yeah. all of those incredible works you see, a whole bunch of them are cell vinyl. But a lot of these artists were interested in it because of its formal qualities. It gives you this really beautiful, clean line. It's very rich. The opacity is really gorgeous. The colors are really bright. But I was more interested in um, the kind of gendered formal qualities of it. And I really wanted to deeply interrogate that history. And so it hasn't really been used so much for cell work. Where do you get it now? I mean, since nobody's making it anymore, but... You know what? I hate to tell you, my heart is broken. No. I was getting it from the Cartoon Color Company, mm -hmm. which has been around since, oh my gosh, like the early 40s. Mm -hmm. And they stopped making it last fall. No. Yes, it was the last place in the country. Were you able to hoard it? I have a little stockpile. But the problem is, is that it's expiring fast. Oh, it has a shelf life. It does have a shelf life. So it's separating and it's really, really breaking my heart. And there's a few other materials that are not comparable, but workable. Mm -hmm. But I really, yeah. And even the celluloid is probably hard to come by or expensive. I would you know, the celluloid actually hasn't been used since kind of the 1950s. So everything that you've seen past then has been just common acetate. Oh. Yeah, so the celluloid itself was super flammable oh, right. and wasn't really conducive to kind of large quantities like that when you're around like bright lights and flashes when you're shooting it. That's really like... It's <laughs> not a good combination. Yeah, no, not at all, not at all. And what's interesting is that all of those cells that you see that are like, you know, like Snow White, Bambi, yeah. they were washed off completely after, almost all of them. Disney had this idea that for a long time that the cells themselves were worthless and yeah. what was the work of art was the finished product. The film, yeah. Hmm. yeah, and so these 
these cells that you see that so are they're not sale. that rare though because there's so many of them that's the thing is that they didn't figure out right away that they should be saving them yeah and then a lot of the ones that you see around are not production cells like they will oh. have been recreated there's this oh, really? gallery called uh, like Corvassier gallery that they, that's who they were selling them through is that they realized, oh, this is something that someone will spend money on. Yeah. And so a number of them weren't production cells. A number of them are production cells still. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, 24 frames a second. You I know, have, exactly. You have, have a shitload of them, right? Yeah, so, it'll be half a million cells <laughs> yeah. for a movie, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I could see, like, yeah, we, you, know, you wouldn't need all of them. I mean, right. Some of the key frames, maybe. Right, exactly, yeah. So, and that's really interesting. And there's all of these, like, smaller animated shows that were done by, you know, second tier, third tier uh, animation companies that are, you know, available on eBay for like two or three dollars. That are all these like cartoons that people grew up with in the 90s yeah. that I've been like hoarding just because they're so incredible. It's, I really, it really is fascinating to me. Yeah. And so, okay, so, so, but in, in the, the, the craft portion of it and the acetate and the, the um, paints you want to use and all that are referencing these, these um, for lack of a better word, feminist issues? Yeah, I would say so. And so it's kind of interrogating this, these materials through a social or cultural lens. And so that's kind of what is the most interesting to me is this. And so these are images. When you look at these films, they're you know highly insidious specifically because of, of their masquerading as family-oriented films. You go yeah. through and watch them again and the messages that they're sending you know, are so negative, but they're also so formative for youth. You're exposing yeah. children at such a young age. And so these are images that were all being to painted. Be like, like, for example, Snow White being cleaning up after the, the dwarves. Right, exactly. But even getting, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after that, you know, The Little Mermaid has a terrible message to it. And that was like my favorite movie of all time growing up. I never saw that. What happens in the... Oh, oh my wait. gosh, you have to see no, it. No, no, of course I've seen it. Wait, yeah. but I don't remember what happened. So she like, gives up her voice for oh, a guy, basically. That's right, yeah. That's right. but well, how classic is that? Yeah, totally. And so it's all these <laughs> women that are painting these messages into reality, right, right. you know? And so these women that I interviewed as part of a work that was at the Contemporary Art Museum of North Carolina um, in Raleigh, called No Damsel, I interviewed a bunch of these women who worked in the ink and paint department when they were 18, you know, they're now in their 90s, and yeah. they're really difficult to track down. I can imagine. Yeah, and they have the most amazing stories, but they're telling me all these, these, you know, stories that are at odds with this really positive spin that's being put on sure. the work now. And yeah, that's that's really what's fascinating to me. Is, so, is but the, the, the cultural context, and the but then the images you paint are also, um, you know, you're you're using Disney characters, but you're updating them, right? Yeah, you know, I'm kind of straying from that a little bit. And oh, okay. part of that show, the Disney princess imagery was almost incidental. What was most interesting to me is how those really deep rooted. Uh, concepts about femininity and gender, where they come from, like what is the the, you know, what is that seed or what what is the inception of it? And so for me, well, they're all ripped off from European folk tales. That yes, of course, but I mean in terms of an actual human, you know, mm -hmm. a living, breathing little child 
how are these ideas about gender and specifically femininity formed? Like, what is the earliest exposure? Oh. So for me, the earliest exposure was these films. Sure. Like that what was formative for me, you know? Hmm. So that imagery was almost secondary to, to what I was exploring. And I've strayed away from that. Primarily what I'm working with now is um, cell animation of these products that I've been doing. And so I've oh. been animating like short commercials yeah, for I products that don't exist and kind of creating this little world of, you know, all of these different items that come mm -hmm. together to form something bigger. Typically oh, okay. what I'm working on now is uh, hand inked products. Okay. Different items, mostly cleaning and beauty oriented, feminine coated goods. So. Items that have typically been conceived of as domestic products, you know? And what's interesting about it to me is that these are works that I'm creating these kind of like faux animated commercials for. Yeah. Kind of playing with this idea of, of advertising being one of the first forms of visual media that was directed towards women. And so that's something that, that really, really fascinates me. There isn't a lot... Think about it. Our whole visual history, our whole, you know, entirety of art history, this is something that wasn't for women. It, it wasn't about female spectatorship, you know? It was about male artists and other male artists. And advertising, the, it was one of the first times that, that there was a, a mass concept of female spectatorship, of, oh, there is well, a group of women... Consumer it. Exactly. There's a group of women and they are consumers and they control money and we want their money. Right. So it was one of the first times of, oh, we have to harness this well, group but, of yeah, women Well, yeah, but I mean, they way. also, yeah, yeah but, and then, then the voice that they use to speak is, you know, it, it frames that, what the perception is, or the perceived perception of what it means to be female. Right, exactly. So it's it's doing both at the same time. It's constructing an idea and then selling it back to you of this way yeah. that you should be. And that's what's most interesting to me. Well, there's an interesting thing about advertising as a language that way in that, um, in, you know, in a short history of advertising, I would say in what I refer to as proto-advertising, um, or proto-advertising age, was uh, the very first sort of, you know, af um, you know here in the U.S. anyway, around, you know, the mid-1800s, um, you know, where it, all the stuff that was being sold was, was features and benefits, as you would talk about it in the advertising world. Um, and so, for example, ivory soap floats, um, you know, and, uh, and then the patent medicines are a great example of that, right? It's snake oil, but, it, you know, we talk about the ingredients and, you know, here's, <laughs> and the benefits are, you know, it cures everything, right? right. What it can do for you. <laughs> Right. Rather than how it can yeah. make you better as an individual. Yeah, no, no, no. It's all just about you know. Here's this. These are these amazing ingredients, right. and they'll cure this everything. Is how we perform. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's a features and benefits good. Mm -hmm. And then there's like in the golden age of advertising, it starts around the 30s and 40s, where it becomes very aspirational, and you you can now you know they're showing you that you you are not a man you smoke Marlboros, you're right. not a woman unless right. you have your hair a certain way, you're not, you know, and, and this is what it means to be that kind of life. And, right. and interestingly too, it all, it all uh, kind of um, uh, mirrors, you know, the, the 
prosperity of a particular nation as well. Right, so absolutely. like the fact practicality was everybody scraping to get by and all that and then, you know, in the post war area we have there's more disposable income and blah blah blah. Right. And then now I think we're in, you know, people recognize it as a post-advertising world, mm -hmm. which isn't so. Some people say that because, well, the, you can turn off the ads, right? Like you can not, you know, you can zip through the ads. I know. Can you, though? You can't really. What's interesting well, is that this is yeah. marked by seamlessness with the surroundings, you know? Right. I'm looking on Instagram, and these are all ads, and I don't even know it. These are all women that are trying to sell me, right. you know, fit tea. Right. That, that's so my, yes. And I, the initial, the, they talk about post-advertising, initially when you could, you know, record your your television and not have to watch the commercials. And that was sort of the start of what's referred to as post-advertising. And, and now, as you say, it's, you know, it's content marketing. And it's all, yeah, you don't know if it's an ad or not or what have you. So, so now, interestingly, there is, uh, you know, a push for brands to portray themselves as authentic and uh, and you know show that they're and actually show their values right and coming into that corporate social responsibility world right. where they're, they're saying you know we're also social activists right like, we're not just a brand we're Correct. fighting for you and your right. social rights yeah you and know? so it's a weird twist and some right. some of it is you know you'll see you know Duke energy ads you know a, a nuclear uh, who's primarily a nuclear <laughs> um, provider, you know, talking about, you know, um, the greening of, of, of uh, the planet. Right, so absolutely. You'll have like a greenwash, like a makeup, and it's feminist makeup, and it mm -hmm. makes you, buying it makes you more empowered. More empowered, somehow. right. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a little bit right. where the buying power thing comes in, sure. playing on that weird world of using feminism and empowerment as a, a capitalist tool. Right. Which is really bizarre to me. Yeah. So, yeah, so you're in an interesting space. And I, I, I uh, it's actually why I had you on it. Um, because of that, I mean, I think, you know, where you, as you mentioned, the seamlessness of content marketing and then just the power of marketing and now how people are, you know, as we just talked about, corporations, you know, for better or worse some are some are actually genuine about it I think you know I but, know totally you know. that's the problem is that I have a really hard time my my critical nature wants to across the board hate <laughs> it all sure but really a lot of the people producing this content have really good intentions a lot of the time you know I, I'm yeah. specifically thinking about this Gillette ad you know this uh -huh. be a man you haven't seen it I'll no, send it no, to maybe. you what is it? it's like this ad about the, the Gillette did it's like be a man and being a man for Gillette now means respecting others and what? and being kind and what does yeah. this have to do with shaving that's the what does anything have to do with any of these, you know? But but the thing is is that it's Well does it that mean does that mean they're not gonna make like lady lady Gillette? I know, right? Pink, like does that mean across the pink? board that they're yeah, yeah no we're not I, gonna have a pink uh, yeah, no, razor I now. I really doubt know. it. And that's the thing is that there's this weird like yeah, the other part of their company is still reinforcing those things. But the people right. that made that ad are yeah. actually really great like and they do have do really that. good intentions, you know? And so hmm. my weird Maybe. critical alarm system is going like oh i'm a, i'm suspicious of this i would be yeah that sounds a little much yeah and so really like it's a really it's a complex thing and i really don't know how to feel yeah about i don't it. yeah I, I don't when it when it 
you know, on a, in a massive corporation thing. There's a there's an article in the recent New Yorker, not this week but last week, uh, about uh, outside voices that um, athletic wear company and how they're trying to you know empower or use the the. The, their designs to like have, be all inclusive of all different kinds of body types and right. not, you know and, and how they run their company that way mm-hmm. and, and, and so on um, and how she went and built the brand and everything it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting piece if you're interested at all in this kind of stuff yeah no definitely yeah. and it, it's interesting my my educational my academic background part of my degree was in equity studies. So oh. it was all about that this was the future that I wanted, you know, where brands considered, you know, all races and all genders when they're yeah. doing their marketing and, and different viewpoints are told, you know, different storylines, different content creators are out there, you know, giving their voice. And so now that it's actually happening and it's a reality, I don't really know how to feel about it. I'm like, is this is this what I wanted? Oh wait, like there's I'm still operating within this like horrible capitalist system that is highly exploitative. Well, is it, it exploitative it, yeah. in like a better way? And now they're just you know now they're using the influencer, right? You know, and uh, also as sort of a indentured slave. Yeah. Um, you know, because they get merch and they don't necessarily get paid. Mm-hmm. Only the, like very very few influencers get paid yeah. a lot. Yeah, and it's weird. Art is going a similar direction where there's like a seamless, a seamlessness with the corporate aspect. Like coming to the U.S., I'm Canadian, and so Canada has really great federal funding for the art, hmm. whereas the U.S. doesn't really have that. Aside from gallery and institutional funding, a lot of the places where artists are getting their money in the U.S. is corporate sources. Sure. And so that's something that I kind of had to learn about and navigate. Well, you mean for their shows or the institutions or kind of everything? Yeah, donations for their shows. If there's an idea that they have and they go, "Oh, I want to do this this large scale work," how do I find somebody who's going to pay for this? Oh, right. like I'll go to Red Bull. Like Red Bull is a huge supporter of the arts. You know, yeah, and that's that kind was of. Something. I mean, I don't you know I don't know who does their curatorial work, but no, they they really have a good team. They ha- they have good taste too. Yeah, really? yeah. No, there was a Mel Chin show that was I think just last year that was really great. Like oh, they do. They've great stepped work. it up then. No, they've they stepped it up. Honestly, <laughs> yeah. And that's the other thing is that I can't, you know, I can't hate on it. It it's really right. great work that they're doing too. Yeah, I well I I, I was n- I've never been a Red Bull fan. I believe <laughs> well uh, not not because of the product just. Uh, and it's an amazing accomplishment. Red Bull, if you're done. listening, he will take your money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you want to sponsor this podcast? Um, yeah, for sure. We'll take a Red Bull sponsorship. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's really interesting to me, for sure. And I think also, you know, we live in Los Angeles, and so it's, I think, a little bit more of an issue here. You know, I think if we were living in a lot of other cities, that relationship to media creation mm. you know movies advertising i think that that would be you know less less important than it is living here it's a little bit more visible here i think yeah maybe uh well yeah the at least the popular culture piece of it yeah i yeah maybe i mean i i you know unless you're saying as opposed to say new york or something no, as opposed to like i don't know as opposed to minneapolis or something yeah. like that you know i minneapolis think it's not a lot of ad agencies does Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh. Well, because, you, you know, that. well, all, a lot of all the uh, packaged goods companies started their General Mills. And oh, okay, yeah, that Pillsbury makes sense. And all that that. Makes sense. So, 
So since back in the day, Best yeah. Buy, Target, they're oh, all there. Interesting. So they have a large consumer packaged huh. goods uh, you know, mini industry there. Interesting. But uh, yeah, no, and so and they do. Um, yeah, they don't. There's not a lot of production there, but there's a lot right. of a uh, lot of creative, uh, you know, strategy and right. stuff that goes on there. Yeah. Well, then that's the thing is that a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is kind of proximity oriented. Maybe if I was in Minneapolis, it would be more. more you know, more I'd be making Pillsbury. yeah Pillsbury based work <laughs> instead. And that I think I love that about LA. There's a lot of artists here that are making works that you know take influence directly. You know, from I mean specifically Disney. You know, yeah. Larry Johnson's one of my favorites in the sure. whole world, and he's been doing this for you yeah. know thirty or, or years. Paul McCarthy, right? Exactly, Paul McCarthy. Exactly. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think I don't know. Well, it's unavoidable it here. Key. I mean, I you know I grew up in the shadow of Disneyland, you know, right? Literally, I, you know, out there, and um, so yeah, I mean, and it is. It's a huge part. And then you know, wherever you go, there's some kind of something's being shot, and yeah. so it's kind of funny. And you know. Yeah. You're part of uh, the Magic Factory, right? Yeah, yeah. In my studio right now, I just left. They're shooting something outside of it. I'm not sure, but they have fake guns, and <laughs> I got yelled yeah, at. Let's hope it was a fake gun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, fingers crossed. You never know. Yeah. It is, and, you know. No, I know. They do that. Well, they shoot a lot. You know, the stores in Chantan, I live there, too, and... and uh, they're shooting something, primarily Netflix. Oh yeah, they must shoot in Chinatown all the all time. All the time. Yeah. yeah, I love it over there. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. So yeah, so the yeah, I think there is something to to being here, and and and, and historically, you know, the artists, as you said, for a long time have been you know examining that. It's very very Californian to yeah, very California to to be about about the the media machine. Yeah, and it's sure. lucky I didn't really have to have. It still comes up in the work a lot, of course, but that kind of, kind of higher, lower conversation mm. of animation happens quite a bit before my time, you know, where that kind of world was really rejected by the fine art world as, you know, trash and entertainment and not anything that, that had any kind of actual value. Mm. So luckily I came in after that kind of conversation had already happened in terms of your which work I'm sorry animation just in general just animation being taken seriously as an art form oh 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 so okay so you're not going to be animating things anymore (laughs) no I still I still unfortunately am I don't know what's why I like this punishment but I unfortunately when it's done yeah it looks great it looks great feels good And it really, it's so beautiful. Like, I'm going through the last of my cell vinyl now. I have a few different backup types of paint, but it really just is so gorgeous. I'm addicted to it. There just is no other choice. Very, very, very good. So, um, what are you going to be doing next? You're going to be working on more animation. That's right. You have this. When's the show? What's the new? It'll be fall. I haven't released the date yet, but okay. I'll let you know. Oh, and this is it'll be a pop up, so you're in control. That's right. So I'm in okay. control. So I I do have uh, a number of people who are working on it with me, and I have a number of artists who designed products for it. Oh, fun. Yeah, and a few actually of the products that were at Marciano were designed by other people oh. as well. Yeah, I had Judith. Bob Butler de- designed a deodorant, which blew my mind. I couldn't believe that. Uh, yeah, there was a number of, of really great artists that I worked with for it. And so they'll be coming back and doing a couple products. I'll probably have a couple other works. I really like to bring multiple voices together for a conversation. It just seems yeah. kind of lazy to me 
I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't really love if it was just me. So, luckily, there's a pretty good team of people working on it. Right. And so that'll be for the fall. And that'll be downtown. That'll be downtown LA. Okay. Yeah. And that's primarily what I'm focused on well, right now. Well, that's a lot. It's already March. It's already April, March. April, I know. Right. Yeah, I have a big work that's going into a building in Sacramento in June. So that's kind of what's taking up all my time right now. But. Yeah, I would say those are my two main and is works. is that a commission or something? Or it's a commission. I'm oh. building a giant... Do you know what Disney's backgrounds used to be shot on? No. This kind of multi-plane camera they invented? Mm-mm. So I'm, I'm building a big multi-plane. So it's going to be a big 10 by 20 foot glass sculpture that'll have oh, trees yeah. painted on oh, it. Yeah, the glass piece. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it'll be four panes deep. Right. Again, I don't know why I took this level of work on, but cool. we'll see. And it's how Yeah. Four panes against each other, yeah. about eight inches apart, and right. it's 10 feet tall by 20 feet wide. Wow. Yeah, cool. it's going to be really great. Very cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. But the, I would say... Is it backlit? It'll be kind of side-lit. Uh, the, the space is mostly natural lighting, luckily. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it's going to be... This is a permanent okay. installation. It will be, yes. Awesome. Yes, it will be. But I'm really where my heart is, is buying power in the fall. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be great. Cool. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming. This was wonderful. Yeah. Well, we'll talk soon. Definitely. <laughs> All right, thanks. You've been listening to A.G. Geiger Presents, Tales from the L.A. Art Underworld. Our guest today was artist Dorian Lind. A.G. Geiger Presents is produced by me, Michael Delgado, in conjunction with the Mayfair Hotel, artist and music management company Regime 72, and, of course, A.G. Geiger Fine Art Books. Check us out at MayfairLA.com, Regime72.com, and AGGeiger.com. Thanks for listening.